Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. Twitter was on fire on Tuesday. Both Tucker and He's Back were trending on Twitter. And that was because after much anticipation, Tucker released his first episode. So... You remember we talked about on this show, he's off Fox News, he left Fox. Then we learned he made this big announcement a couple weeks ago that his show was now going to be streamed on Twitter. So he posted, I think the only text with it was just episode one and was 10 minutes long. And it was interesting, the things that he chose to focus on and talk about. He talked about in Ukraine, there's this huge dam that has just been broken. Russia is blaming Ukraine for having sabotaged it and broken it and caused all this flooding. Um, Ukraine's blaming Russia. So no one knows yet who who has done it because they're just it's just a blame game right now. So Tucker talked about that and ha- he never really concluded who for sure he thought, but he definitely did not speak very highly of Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, and then he even got into a conversation about aliens. <laughs> yeah. um, it was not, I would say, in part, we were seeing the Tucker Carlson of Fox News and, you know, sort of his his bluntness. But this was a different level. It really in some ways, uh, was Tucker Carlson un- unhinged. It was just him being completely frank, saying what he wants to say, and people were watching. That is for sure. Kristen, yeah. what were your thoughts as you watched some of this? Well, I just saw some of the clips just now, actually, and I think it's kind of a different take on journalism. I don't oh, know that's exactly. A good way to describe it. Yeah. It is. It's a very different take on journalism. Yeah. And I I mean he does bring up that, you know, curiosity in journalism has largely been killed by mainstream media, mm-hmm. which I mean it's surprise, true. surprise. Yeah. We kind of knew that. But we I mean we were just laughing about him, you know, saying, hey, there's UFOs. And now you know. And it's like, wait, (laughs) there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. I think we're going to need more than two minutes to establish that there's UFOs and to say you have a source that shares this information. And it's like, "Mm." exactly. But I I do, I appreciate the fact that I feel like Tucker takes the, you know, the calm, still waters and the status quo when he just shakes it up. Oh, for sure. And I super appreciate that he does that. So that's good and healthy. But I'm really curious what this show is going to look like as he moves forward after this wild episode one. For sure. No, but I I mean, to his credit, it's a 10-minute-ish episode, Mm -hmm. and he talks about everything from, like, Pentagon-related items to the UFOs to, um, you know, just, like, what's going on in our world. And I think that's really powerful for a nation that's used to—I mean, I used to sit in front of five TVs, and they had programming. You know, every second was programmed, and it wasn't always the best quality. I mean, Fox News, I've I've seen them cut out a few times. I've I've seen their cameras rearranging, like, on— um, live TV on live TV, and you're like, "Whoa, what are you? That, you're, this is your job." And, and I mean, I don't know; it might be hard, so I'm not judging. But I think it was really interesting to see. You know, he is literally hitting on what he like what he thinks is most important for the day, mm-hmm. and he's able to do that in ten minutes. I think that is a really cool thing to do, and it just shows you how effective and how like talented he is as yeah. a journalist. Well, so. and I I stand with what you just said. I stand by my claim that Tucker Carlson has in many ways killed cable television. Yeah. And I think a lot of other people are probably going to take after him and it's maybe it's almost like the new uh the new 
podcast. I don't want to say that. Keep listening yeah. to podcast, please. please. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we saw blogs where like everyone had a blog. And then it's like everyone has a podcast. Now it's going to be maybe everybody has their own YouTube or yeah. uh, or Twitter show. Reels. Like you know. we've been doing a lot of reels lately. For those of you who don't follow us on Instagram, totally go check us out. Um, Virginia's done some really fun reaction videos. We've got some of uh, Sarah Perry's content up there. Mm. And again, it's kind of thriving to be striving, not thriving. We are thriving though. <laughs> we are thriving and we're striving. Yes. <laughs> but we are striving to give you kind of what you need to know, the facts in a, a condensed way. So yeah. that's exciting. Well, and that's exactly what we're going to do here today. Yes. (laughs) So, Kristen, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up. Up on today's Problematic Women, we're shaking things up a little. The Queen of Heritage's Legal Center herself shares her journey to Washington, D.C. Then we dive into the story on a former teammate of the transgender swimmer, Leah Thomas, sharing her discomfort with how the biological male joined the women's swim team. Later, we give a hot take on Ireland's war with this barnyard creature, and we talk about this week's upcoming Turning Point USA Young Women's Leadership Conference. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right. Let's get to it. All right, Sarah. So we've had you on this show many times, um, but I don't know if we've ever really discussed how you came to be this brilliant legal mind at the Heritage Sarah Foundation. Partial Perry, the wow. Sarah Parshall Perry. Sarah Parshall Perry. <laughs> the senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. The okay, <laughs> so I took sort of a circuitous path to this position right now. So I, there are a couple of things I knew I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be a mom, and I knew I wanted to write. And then I went through a phase in high school where I told everybody I was going to be an astrophysicist. And then, <gasps> and then my awesome. calculus teacher went, no, you're not. So I decided I was going to follow my original predilection to write. I got my undergrad in journalism and was actually thinking about whether or not I I knew I wanted grad school, but it was, do I want to go get my master's in journalism? Because I had this sort of roving reporter fantasy Mm -hmm. going on. And um, the other side of the coin was, do I want to go to law school? And my dad, who was also a lawyer, said, you know, you could actually write if you wanted without a master's in journalism, but you would only ever practice law with a law degree. And you've got a really good mind for it. So I Mm. went, oh, okay, that makes it easy. So I went to law school, loved my time at the University of Virginia, great law school. Um, And the one thing I would have done different is get a federal clerkship, Mm. right? So a lot of the Legal fellows in the Mies Center did a federal clerkship. Well, I want to get out and practice. What is a federal clerkship? So that's when you work for a federal judge mm-hmm. and you provide a lot of the research and writing for that judge. Mm-hmm. You analyze the cases. You analyze oral arguments. You come up with that research and then help to sort of develop what the judge is actually going to make that determination on. It's mm-hmm. it's a great way to really hone your skills as a lawyer, and they're very prestigious. But clerkships were not something my dad did either. Hmm. I mean, he got out of school and went immediately to practice, and I worked for a very small firm. I was the only female, awesome. the quintessential problematic woman. Yeah. And um, I was in 
in court arguing a $3 million summary judgment motion six months after I was sworn into oh, the bar. Oh, my word. Right? And then I went, oh, maybe I don't like suing people as much as <laughs> I like. So I did that for two years and then went in-house at an advertising agency. And that was fun, but kind of boring. It's mm-hmm. just contracts. It's just licenses. Then I got uh, pregnant with my oldest and had three in quick succession and stayed home for 10 years and then had a friend reach out to me and say, we really need somebody to handle partnerships and education reform at the Family Research Council. Well, I had sworn off conservative policy because Mm -hmm. my parents are conservative policy wonks. My dad (laughs) works for ACLJ. My mother is a radio talk show host on a conservative Christian radio station. I'm like, no, I want to do something different. I'm going to make it mine. And then it's kind of funny because God has a way of going, no, you're going to do exactly (laughs) what I want you to do. And I'm going to put it right here in front of you. So I worked there for a couple of years, six years, um, actually co-hosted the radio show that Tony had for a while. Loved doing that, right? So all the journalism training kind of came into play. But I really became passionate about education reform and sort of writing more scholarly work. So I got back into more legal work and then was tapped by the Trump administration to come work at the Office um, for Civil Rights at Department of Education. And and civil rights had always been my passion because I had started in employment discrimination law. So it was like all the pieces that made no sense to me as this sort of splayed out jigsaw all came together in this one contiguous whole. And then I had an opportunity to go to a different um, couple of different places after I got out of the administration to go back into litigation, specifically in religious liberty law, which I'm very passionate about. But again, I went, you know, do I really want to spend all that time in the courtroom or do I want to research, write on, analyze, advocate for positions that will help the litigators who really want to be there Mm -hmm. make their arguments. And that's really kind of my sweet spot. So I've been here two and a half years and I love it. Yeah, I think that's really important to point out, too, because a lot of people I know I gave a presentation when I was younger on um, being a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer because I had seen Legally Blonde, obviously, and then a few good (laughs) men. (laughs) And then a few good men. And those are really tense court scenes. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I want to do that. That's awesome. I want to feel like like a cool lawyer. But um, you're right. To your point, there are different positions. Sometimes you're just dealing with contracts. And I've heard the joke of you got to be okay with paperwork sometimes. And yep. um, so it's it's cool how you kind of tried everything. I did. And, <laughs> and then <laughs> found see. what you love. Yeah. Government, litigation, uh, in-house counsel, think tanks, and then back to think tanks <laughs> with a lot of the research and writing that kind of got me into law school in the first place. So wow. all of it kind of came together. So now my particular focus is civil rights and civil liberties. And I've got a heavy emphasis on um, specifically educational civil rights, Title VI, Title IX, um, employment discrimination law specifically, and a lot of religious liberty work. And I love it because I get a chance to write about cases that First Liberty is bringing, ADF is bringing, Pacific uh, Justice Institute is bringing. These are all law firms, public interest law firms that are doing some of the most critical work in the country right now. If you think about the cases that are the most impactful, and even I think to many on the left, the most controversial, these are cases that are allies, the Mm -hmm. conservative lawyers, public interest lawyers, not making big bucks. They are out there representing individuals who have had their constitutional rights infringed upon. Getting to write on that and advocate for them in their legal battles I love it. Yeah. Oh, that's really special. 
In in everything that you have walked through, Sarah, what are maybe some pieces of advice you would give or, or just whether it's like big picture career advice or just kind of random little tips and tricks that you've picked yeah. up along the way as a, as a woman in a pretty high power career? So I would say, um, first of all, don't be afraid to experiment with career mm. options. Obviously, I, I hopped around. Many people took a very straight and narrow path. It was clerkship and right into think tank in the world of public interest law. But I wasn't sure where I was supposed to be with my legal training. And yeah. I needed to find something that met my training, but also met my interest. And you've got to know yourself. What gets you up in the morning? Mm -hmm. For me, I'm exceptionally cause-oriented. I'm an Enneagram One. I don't know if anybody knows those. It's kind of the Joan of Arc out in front of the army, right? (laughs) (laughs) If anybody's going to make a stink about something, it's going to be me first, shields up, right? You're going to get it done. That's what gets me up. There's so much work to be done. And I... I come to work happy because I am excited about making a difference. Yeah. Um, for some people, they may just want to punch a clock and <laughs> go home and be home for the time their bus gets back with the kids at 3.30. Yeah. And that might be the most important thing. My kids are older, so they're all teenagers. They're all self-sufficient. I have one going into college in the fall. Oh, exciting. Oh, pray for me. <laughs> um, and then, you know, for me, I've got a lot more flexibility so I can work those longer hours and um, – I can be more available when some of these Supreme Court cases break. So I think it's knowing yourself, Mm -hmm. not being afraid Mm -hmm. to experiment. And I think for our women listeners, um, if you're inclined toward marriage and family, you can have it all, but just not at the same time. There are some things that have to give. And I think we burn ourselves out not realizing that what we do at home has such exceptional value, right? So we just passed Mm -hmm. Mother's Day. And I remember being so full of angst because my mother has this high-powered career. My dad has this high-powered career. I have these two degrees and all of this debt. And suddenly I was home with little people I was only just keeping alive. And that was what I did with my days. And I went through this phase of, am I wasting it? Am I ever Mm going to get back? And everything is a season. And it was such, it was time in a million years I would never give up. It was so important. I think that is something that I at least um, have seen come up more in the news is how do we reintegrate these women that have sacrificed everything for their kids? Do you have any advice for maybe those that are looking to get back into the workforce? Maybe they took, you know, a nice little sabbatical or, I mean, it's not a sabbatical, it's hard work, but, (laughs) you know, 10-ish years or more even off. I think um, women like me need to be willing to mentor younger women and Mm -hmm. to continue to say what I'm saying now, which is this is a phase, particularly when you're raising little people, right? I mean, these days seem interminable when you're going through them, but they really don't last. And now I look back in retrospect and I'm looking at these three self-sufficient quasi-adults going, I just had these kids. Mm -hmm. How is it possible they're this old? So enjoy it. Continue to promote the notion that the best people that we want in these positions are the people who have taken time to raise families because they understand our work, specifically at Heritage and in the conservative movement generally, has to promote the American family. It's got to start at home. If we're not looking well to the ways of our own households, our own families, everything we say in the public sphere is going to ring hollow. Mm, Wow. 
That's really good advice, Sarah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, okay, the show's done. Let's, let's go home. <laughs> no, thank you. I really appreciate um, just your willingness, Sarah, to share your story. And it encourages me because I think as as a young professional woman, you, you're sort of thinking, okay, how, how, how do I do it? How do I do yeah. it all? What is this going to look like? Um, and I think on both sides, right? You know, you have that desire of like, I just want to be a mom. But like, is that bad? Like, should I want to keep growing my career? Or I just want to keep growing my career. Is that bad? Mm -hmm. It's this tug and pull. So um, I I am so encouraged by the seasons. I think it's so true. It's like there's a season for everything. Absolutely. And be okay with that. Uh, but Sarah, while while you ha- we have your brilliant legal mind here, <laughs> <laughs> and in talking about advocating for the family and and standing up for the values that we hold so dear as conservative women, there have been some really critical updates and developments on the women's sports front, specifically yeah. this week. So this is obviously a topic we cover extensively. If you've been listening to this show for very long, you've heard us talk about Selena Soul. You know that name. Selena Soul is one of a group of four women in Connecticut. Uh, she was a high school track runner in Connecticut and was forced to compete against biological males. She and her teammates lost out on opportunities because there there were men who were running and competing as women. So there was lawsuits were filed. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom uh, is representing these four young women. Uh, and initially this case kind of was moving moving forward and then it looked like it was dead. It looked like the court had ruled against them and then something happened and the court was like, wait, no, 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 we want to reopen this. Walk us through what happened here, Sarah. So this is really, um, it was a procedural uh, set of oral arguments yesterday. Oral arguments were just held in front of an en banc panel, which means all the judges. Um of the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. So there, and there are lots of federal cases pending. We've got one in the Sixth Circuit. That's Tennessee versus the U.S. Department of Education on their Title IX guidance. Remember, expanding sex to include gender identity. We've got one in the Fourth Circuit on West Virginia's fairness in women's sports rule. And now we have one in the Second Circuit, specifically on the Selena Sewell versus Connecticut Athletic Association case. Well, oral arguments were heard yesterday and Tyson Langhofer, um, or John Birch rather, argued on behalf of all the female athletes, did a superlative job. Mm -hmm. I mean, just spectacularly eloquent, well-researched, responsive to all of the judges' questions. And they peppered him. They wanted to know why this case wasn't moot because the two individual trans athletes have already graduated and have already gone on. Is their continuing harm sufficient that these young women really need to be given some kind of legal relief? And John said specifically, it may be a dollar of nominal Mm -hmm. damages, but this means a lot. These are records that are kept, Mm -hmm. trophies that are dispersed. They change scholarship opportunities Opportunities and educational opportunities for these women going forward, potentially up, out into to grad school even. Yeah. So um, I think he made really compelling arguments. Some of the judges got into the meat of Title IX and said, listen, guidance that this particular athletic association was operating under, coming from first the Obama administration, then the Biden administration, said, okay, sex is inclusive of gender identity, and you got to let trans athletes play on the same team. And basically, John said, 
Well, guidance is not law. And having worked in the U.S. Department of Education, I can tell you, we too issued guidance. It is not law. They're saying this is how, this is the government saying this is how we'll interpret, but it does not have the effect of law. And John Birch rightly pointed that out to the judges. It was a very compelling argument. And he said, listen, until Congress amends the statute, or we see a final rule from this administration, which we haven't yet. Remember, there are two sort of hanging in the balance. Mm -hmm. This is a sex means biological reality. These women were distinguished, were discriminated against, and their damages matter. Do we know how quickly we'll find out the ruling and let's say that the ruling is in these these girls' favor. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? So this is, again, a largely procedural question that okay. was before the court. They want to make sure this is still what's called a live case or controversy, right? Got the Constitution it. requires that every time you bring a federal court case, there's got to be something that a court can get involved in mm-hmm. and provide redress Four. And if they get the outcome that they want, and I think they will, based on what I was hearing from the from the panel of judges, it will go back down to the federal circuit court, the trial court for what's called a merits determination. Then they get into the meat of Title IX and then they figure out, okay, were these women actually discriminated against? And if so, what are their damages? What are we legally required to give them? This is, is the case still live? Do we have an issue we can still rule on. And the next option will be, okay, now what does Title IX say and were they discriminated against from the outset, which, of course, we all on this program and at the Heritage Foundation know that they actually were. Yeah, so fascinating. Kristen, I'd be so curious to get your perspective just as as a former athlete. What is this like for you to kind of watch these scenarios unfolding where you're seeing young women who are standing up after having had to compete against biological males and now they're going so far as taking years in legal battles? Yeah. For the future of women's sports. No, I I mean, what you're saying, Sarah, is so encouraging. Um, I feel so blessed because this kind of started, I, I was listening to Chelsea Mitchell, who was um, her teammate, actually. Um, and she talked about all of these opportunities she lost. And I actually, I played soccer, um, which is a contact sport. And I actually coach first graders now in Arlington, Virginia, it's super fun. And when these women talk about the the issues that they are facing and the controversy around something as simple as saying men can't participate in women female, biological, female sports, it's just kind of crazy to me because I never had to face that. Um, But seeing women like Riley Gaines and Chelsea Mitchell um, really starting to fight for this is encouraging because really at the end of the day, the integrity of these sports are on the line. Mm -hmm. And something very interesting um, that came out, I think yesterday or maybe the day before, Tuesday or Monday of this week, is um, Leah Thomas's uh, mm-hmm. swim teammate. Her name's Paula Scanlon. She actually joined Matt Walsh on his uh, podcast or just on his YouTube show um, and explained what it was like to be an athlete with this trans person. I don't even want to call um, William that because yeah. he is, at the end of the day, a male. And Paula really walked through how University of Pennsylvania basically told these women to shut up Don't complain about it. This is happening. This is a beautiful thing. And if you go to the media, if you tell anyone how uncomfortable you are, 
you're going to be sorry. Straight yeah. up, that is a quote from the video that you can go check it out on Matt's um, YouTube channel. And I just sit there and I remember some of the things I got upset about when I was playing soccer in college. And it was stupid stuff like my coach telling me, because we, we faced like discrimination all the time. My, my coach told me I wasn't actually injured in one situation and that the trainer should wrap my head, not my ankle, because oh. I am making too much. I'm being too emotional. Oh my God. And mm. as a female athlete that puts her body on the line every single day, again, soccer is a contact sport. If someone were to tell me that while I was playing against males, I would... I don't know. I'd probably quit. I mean, I like to think I wouldn't. Um, my dad raised me to be fiery and stand up for myself. So I, I, I would hope that I wouldn't. But I know that there are others out there. And like I said, I, I coach first graders right now. They're eight. And they get upset by one player who's a little bit taller accidentally running into another and pushing them down. Like the fact that they might in 10 years need to get used to being pushed down by a male it's just so discouraging, and it's taking away from the sport. It absolutely is. And I think um, what the right way to describe what happened at the University of Pennsylvania is extortion, because yeah. it really mm-hmm. was extortion. Whether or not it had to do with pressure from the NCAA, whether or not it had to do with UPenn deciding they were going to be first in sort of breaking that D1 barrier with a trans athlete on literally the national stage – Whatever the impetus was, these women did not have a voice, and they felt afraid to come out. But I'm going to tell you, this is very interesting. I was actually at a dentist appointment today <laughs> where the strange conversations that are beginning to happen everywhere in America, mm. my dental hygienist told me, she whispered to me, I used to work in a pediatrician's office, and I would have kids come in who whose parents, and specifically the mothers, were demanding they be called by opposite-sex pronouns. Mm. And she said, I was so terrified to say anything. We as a conservative movement have got to stop being afraid of what? Of being called transphobes? Guys, the next thing we're going to be called is pedophobes or polyamorist phobes. The minute we've opened that door, and we know the Pandora's box is already open. Mm -hmm. If we don't stand firm now, it's literally only going to get worse. It is. Well, and I'm I'm so impressed by the female athletes that are choosing to speak out. Of course, we have praised Riley Gaines so many times on this show. We've played interviews of her on this show. And she, I think, has really been the inspiration for other women to start speaking out, like this other woman, uh, Paula, I think her name is, at UPenn, who has said, okay, no, 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 I'm going to be public. Because she was in Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman, but was all blacked out. Yeah, she was anonymous. She was anonymous. But now she's like, you know what? I And Matt Walsh asked her during this recent interview that was released, why are you choosing to speak out now? And she was like, well, I kind of thought some of the frustration would go away. I, I thought I would, essentially, I thought I would get over it. And I haven't. I'm I still see the un- injustice here. And so I'm, I decided I was going to go public. And that is something that Riley Gaines has said is it, it's no longer it's no longer OK for women who have a platform uh, and who truly feel like this is wrong to stay silent because so many women are terrified of the backlash that they're going to get. But if you think about it, if every single woman who has a platform in the sports world stood up and said, you know, we we respect people, we love people no matter who they are, but there's clear biological differences between men and women, and we just don't want men competing in our sports. 
it forces people to have to listen. And that's what people like Paula and Riley Gaines are doing is forcing people to listen. Yeah. She also brings up in that interview, too, which I found interesting. She's Catholic and I'm Catholic. So, you know, resonated on that a little bit. And (laughs) she felt so bad about feeling upset about William joining her team Mm -hmm. that she actually had to go to, you know, the, the local Catholic church in her community and the priest really didn't know what to say because this was such a new thing and it is against their religion. So when does it become not only, you know, accusations and um, extortions, but also religious persecution in some mm. senses, not to elevate that too highly, but I mean, the left kind of started it. Um, I think what I also kind of took home and what I think is interesting seeing from her perspective um, as the teammate is when asked what the solution should be, it was actually that just send all these people to the males league. And I don't know if I totally agree with that because I have a younger brother and I know he'd be pissed um, if, you know, you start sending all these like, I don't don't know how to really even call them these trans um, identifying individuals uh, to that league. Um, But her point which was very interesting, is if you send, if you create this third, you know, non-binary league, so we have our women's where all, only women are, the men league where only men are, and then this other league, men are still going to dominate it. I didn't mm-hmm. even think about that. Like, yeah. William would go to the, the non-binary league, and then he'd be getting all the scholarships, all of the, the accolades, all of that. And at the end of the day, that's something, as someone who did receive a scholarship for my athletic performance, I mean, not technically I don't think it was labeled that because I was D3, but... um. <laughs> You know, it largely had to do with my soccer abilities and my success. That is taking away opportunity for women That at the end of the day. You know, it's interesting. During oral arguments yesterday, um, John Bursch was asked whether or not uh, all of the teams could be open. And, and Title IX actually permits co-ed teams. If there's insufficient interest or membership or cost to essentially mount and um, – keep running separate teams based on biological reality, you can open them all up and they can all be co-ed. It was fine as far as ADF was concerned, but the attorney for the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Association said, well, no, we want to make sure students like Trisha Yearwood, the trans athlete, gets a chance to play with the biologically, you know, sort of team that he or she associates with. So in other words, you're going to take something away from women because you're not willing to play with men and women. So you've you've automatically identified the particular class against which you will be discriminating. It just puts women in the exact same disadvantaged position we were back in 1972 when we passed Title IX. That's what Paula said, too, in this interview. She literally goes on and explains that the only thing NCAA looks at for, you know, deciding whether or not to allow males to compete in female leagues and and on their teams is their um, testosterone levels. And obviously, I I mean... (laughs) A lot of more. There's a lot more hormones out there than that that we should be paying attention to, and muscle mm-hmm. density and bone structure. Um, I plug this all the time, but there's a reason CrossFit has different standards for women and men, and it is literally because our bodies are so different. Um, just to put it in a perspective, I went golfing this weekend, and I just you know for fun and for this episode, the longest um, y- drive a woman has ever done was back in 2018. It was 355 yards. In contrast, for males, it was around 750. Ooh. Like, are you wow. kidding me? Yeah. Tell me we're not different. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, up next, we're going to have a hot take. 
on cows. That'll be fun. Uh, but in the meantime, if you're enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and you're searching for other like-minded, like-minded podcasts, then look no further than Students Over Systems. It's a podcast production of our friends over at the Independent Women's Forum. Every other Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, host Ginny Gentles is joined by parents and policymakers to discuss school choice, such a critical issue, and parental rights. Students Over Systems charts a path to a brighter future by featuring the voices of the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. And if you cannot wait for that next episode to drop on Tuesday, you can listen to past episodes at iwf.org or just search for Students Over Systems in your favorite podcast app. All right. Well, Kristen, let us know what's happening with these cows. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I mean, the headlines we see nowadays are just not surprising. Um, Well, no, I I think it's kind of sad. I don't know if you guys have had Kerrygold butter or any of the Kerrygold products. They're delicious. They're amazing. Uh, Yeah, they are cheese and butter. Both great. And I was raised in Wisconsin, so I know. Yeah. So this is an expert that we have here. Um, (laughs) And that means a lot is at stake. At stake. (laughs) I couldn't say it because of the cows. <laughs> but um, no, yeah, Freedom of Information Act um, request from the Irish Independent revealed that the Ireland that Ireland's Department of Agriculture is reportedly looking at plans to cull around two hundred thousand cows in the next three years. Um, I might be dumb, but cull essentially means to you know just get rid of, kill. <laughs> it's sad. Um, yeah. Where are my PETA friends at? Um, but anywho, so the plan is in the name of climate change, essentially. Um, Ireland's dairy herd is really being threatened right now. And I I am just kind of flabbergasted <laughs> because we're pu- pushing this, um, this policy saying that the science dictates that we need to, you know, decrease, decrease methane by getting rid of some of these animals, but it's not actually consistent with like a lot of the, the math that we're seeing. And just to give you a perspective, um, what this, this culling of 200,000 cows is really after is, um, is reducing methane and, and, for perspective, um, on average, a dairy cow produces between 150 to 264 pounds of methane gas per year. So it doesn't seem like a ton. I get it, though. Like, that's kind of a big number. Um, but in contrast, um, we have these EV batteries that we are producing right now. Um, and they actually, for production, um, they admit CO2, um, which is 25 times less potent than methane when it comes to trapping heat. So it's a little bit better, I guess, in the in the world of chemicals and, and uh, compounds. Um, but I, I, like I said, I did the math. Um, and to produce these batteries, it's about 5,291 pounds of CO2 produced for each battery. So that means that if you were to kind of um, compare and contrast, including that 25 times more potent number, the number of EV batteries that we would just not produce in order to save all 200,000 of these cows is 8,000 car batteries. So I I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because like they are basically, if we want to, you know, take whatever heat out of the environment, there's two ways to do it. I'm not really sure why we're not talking about ending this, this car battery. You know, it's interesting. Our, um, 
our director of the Center for Energy, Climate, and the Environment, Diana Furchgott-Roth, who's got a great British accent for she any does. of you um, oh, who does. have not yet heard her. She's Lovely. tremendous. She actually wrote an article, a report back in March of this year, so just a few months ago, saying that climate policies were going to shut down farmers. She's actually done the cost analysis on this. It's tremendous. I commend the article to you. But she's talking about the fact that despite what the left is saying about 30% of all greenhouse gases coming from agricultural sites, right? So from farmers specifically, I'm talking about Western countries right now, um, and they, they will account for a full 30% by 2050. We're looking at inflation that is skyrocketing. I mean, we've got the price of eggs up. We've got the price of milk up. We've got leftists on Capitol Hill arguing for climate change policies that are going to essentially relegate individuals in America to poverty and hunger because we're going to shut down farmers, which they make the substance of our entire sort of dietary consumption in the Western world comes from agrarian nations and from here in the the Western world um, from farmers themselves. So we've got We've got these sort of liberal cultural elites who are saying everyone's going to buy a smart car. Everyone's going to buy, you know, we're going to shut down farmers and we're going to eliminate the number of cows in Ireland. And they're they're failing to take into account the the cost, the humanity cost mm-hmm. of all of this. Climate change always happens, right? We tick up about a degree every few decades. It's just the way that our planetary solar system works. I'm not going to get into the boring science because it is boring. (laughs) But go to Diana. She's got lots of research on this. Climate change is an inevitability. Taking these drastic steps, we just saw this last Supreme Court term with West Virginia versus EPA, where the Supreme Court said, guys, your Clean Air and Water Act program totally not supported by the underlying law. You can't in, you can't institute hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines and additional costs on people who are subject to this law without them having a chance to weigh in and the statute doesn't give you that authority. So I commend Diana's report to you. It's tremendous, but this is just sort of part and parcel of what we're seeing in the western mm-hmm. world. Cultural elites are saying we're going to make drastic changes to fight climate change, but the people who end up paying are the everyday Americans, the everyday individuals in these countries. And now the cows. And now, and the, now cows. the cows. The cows. And Which, coming from America's dairy land, you guys. And it seems so ironic that uh, the very people that you think of as being so pro-environment and loving animals are now willing to essentially kill all these animals. Right. Yeah. No, I was listening to um, a podcast yesterday from like a Montana radio station and it was so funny because this one farmer was like, if they try to do that here, I'm going to just, you know, pull my gun on them. And I'm just like, yeah, this is this is the difference, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fight for your cows. But um, they also pointed out, this is a way better point, um, the same people that are pushing fake meat, pushing bug eating, mm. are they, you know, giving up their flame and young? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, right. Well, stay with us because up next we have uh, a unique segment where we're giving you a little Problematic Woman PSA. Stay tuned. Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct, designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. 
Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening. Or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode. We are changing things up a little bit today, and instead of crowning a problematic woman of the week, we have a problematic woman PSA, a public service announcement for you all, because this is a big deal. So every year, there is a conference where young women come together from literally all over the country. These are young conservative women to talk about the issues that affect us as women that we're passionate about, and really to talk about our country. How are we doing? Where are we headed? This is Turning Point's Young Women's Leadership Summit. And Kristen, you are going to be there. It's taking place over the next three days in Texas. Tell us about it. Yeah, I am so excited. And if any of you listeners are going to be there, please find us. I will be at, um, we actually are doing a Project 2025 uh, booth this year. And and tell us what Project 2025 yeah, is. Yeah, no, I'm so excited. Um, basically, what that looks like is staffing the next conservative administration. Um, last time, I feel like I've talked about this on the show before, yeah. but yeah. Um, when I was uh, serving in the Trump administration, we just weren't totally ready. It took years and years. In, in some cases, his entire administration to fill some of the basic um, regularly used positions in the federal government. And this is really ensuring that we kind of get ahead of that. You know, mm. 2025 is fast approaching. And for those of you not super familiar with the executive branch, a lot of times once the primaries have finished and we have our candidate, that is when transition teams step in and they'll start getting briefed by different agencies. They'll start, you know, some of them, I think, even get security clearances so that they can kind of, you know, hand the baton immediately on January 20th should that candidate win. So it's, uh, what, 2023, and we started this effort in 2022. We're, you know, trying to get ahead of the game so that we um, can really build out and do the most we we can in those four years. Um, I think I've plugged this before. We just came out with the Mandate for Leadership, the Conservative Promise. I'm one of the authors on that. I I worked on the commerce section specifically talking about commercializing space, uh, which is exciting. And um, that book will kind of, I mean, honestly, it's it's like a dictionary. So maybe pick a (laughs) chapter or two that you're interested in and read it. But um, that gives a policy lay of the land um, for the next presidential candidate. We've given that to Nikki Haley, DeSantis, Trump, uh, like literally anyone who has announced has received that book. Um, now we are kind of building out our staffing portal, which is essentially a conservative LinkedIn, except you don't link in with people. It's more of you just uploading your information. And then um, there's a vetting process. There's a process of what op- like what opportunities are you interested in? How does that fall into the federal government? And so I encourage you guys, upload your resumes, upload your information, and go to project2025.org to get involved with this amazing project. Um, you can serve your country. You can work for the president of the United States. That's pretty cool. I'm still bragging about it, to be honest. <laughs> um, but it, it's really a great opportunity. So mm-hmm. we'll be plugging that at the Young Women's Leadership Summit. Um, we also will be walking around. I'll have swag from problematic women um, making reels. So come find me. Um, I'll be wearing pink, which is a Boop. nondescript. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of women are wearing pink at that conference. If you have never been, I went for the first time last year and I was like, oh my goodness, this is literally a fashion show conference. Everybody looks so great <laughs> and just pulled out all of the stops outfit wise. But yes, if for anyone attending, if you want to connect with Kristen, first off, to meet one of our amazing hosts of Problematic <laughs> Women, uh, but then also to maybe get a job 
yeah. or with Project 2025 to grab a Problem Equipment sticker, find out more about the show, anything like that, um, feel free to look for the booth. It'll say, the booth will say Project 2025, right? It'll say Project 2025, and it has a really cool um, backdrop this year. It looks like a blueprint with the White House because Ooh. we are building the next Love conservative it. administration. Love it. Oh, so. that's awesome. All right. Well, that is a perfect place to leave it. Thank you all so much for joining us on this week's edition of Problem Life Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So go ahead, take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. Have a great week, guys. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.